Telephone number, 801-254-5855. Let's go to Darrell. Darrell, welcome. Hello, uh, Daniel and Don. Hey, Darrell. Hi. It's great to be able to talk with you both and you, Mills. Um, You might remember, uh, Daniel, one of the fair conference I suggested to you about the uh, a way to look at the uh, the skins turning dark or black and or becoming white in uh, right. the Book of Mormon. And uh, I've been trying to get different ones to take a look at this because I think it's a uh, Book of Mormon evidence that uh, uh, is shows the ancientness of the Book of Mormon. I don't think Joseph Smith could have known about this because it you know, I've been doing a lot of research into this area of ancient garment colored uh, symbolism, ritualistic garments made out of animal skins turning white. In other words, um, the answer to the Book of Mormon issue about black skins turning white, showing it could showing it could be symbolic of ancient ritualistic garments made out of animal skins turning white is symbolic of being cleansed by Christ's atonement, the spots and whitening through repentance, baptism, and righteous living, the spots symbolic of sin, turning skins or garments black. Uh, Hold that thought. We've got a, we've got a pause. We'll be right back. Uh, Darrell, we're back. Uh, let you finish up. Yes, as I was saying, I think that this, Shows the ancientness of the of the Book of Mormon, and this is a, I think, could be a new area of evidence for the Book of Mormon. As I was saying, I was trying to get into the typology about skins turning white or black could be symbolic of ancient ritualistic garments, which were made out of animal skins turning white or turning black, at, uh, where you you rack up a bunch of sins, uh, the more spots. Symbolic of, uh, of sins, turning skins or garments black. Uh, the more spots, the more uh, black your animal skins or garments become. Symbolic of being on God's left hand during judgment, not on not a good place to be. And I think this sh- uh, shows and could could deal with the uh, the charge that the Book of Mormon is racist because that's one of the things that critics will bring up is. Uh, They'll talk about how the, you know, uh, uh, Book Mormon claims that uh, uh, people will be uh, with black skins will turn white and and that kind of thing. So an interesting I, premise. Yeah. Thank now you, I, Darrell. I appreciate that uh, contribution. All right. Thank you. Telephone number eight zero one two five four fifty eight fifty five. Before we go to Ken. Uh, Don, you had something that you wanted to bring up. Yeah, you know, um, one one of the audiences will be out there in addition to you know, believing Latter Day Saints and just uh, sort of people who've never been Mormon and uh, ex Mormons um, is maybe Mormons who are having serious doubts. And I wanted to mention just. Um, you know, I will be talking some about this along with others, uh, like Maxine Hanks, on this panel next, well, Friday of next week at the fair conference. Um, but um, I wanted to mention just a little bit of perspective that I've gotten from having taken this journey, lost my faith in 
in the church, lost my faith in God, left the church, and then found my way back. Um, you know, I think that a lot of times when people encounter difficult issues, it's easy, I know from my experience, to really zero in on those and make them like the focus of all the attention, you know. And when I think whenever in life we focus on something that's negative or that we find disturbing, it it uh, well necessarily it narrows our vision and you know, it makes us less happy. And there's actually a lot of research in addition to my experience and the experience of others to show that when people are happier, their minds work better, they're more expansive, they're less fixated on particular things and problems. And so I think for people who are going through doubts, I think it's important to, um, you know, sort of guard your happiness, you know, do things, continue to do things that make you happy, like serving other people or, you know, um, identifying the things that you're blessed with in your life. And then I would say also to focus on what you do believe, because often people who are having doubts, they they still believe much or even most of what they've learned in the church. They're just particular things that they're having trouble with. So I would say to keep the focus really on what you do believe and not what you don't or what you're doubting. And I, I think that's really wise advice. Um, and uh, if I can just, just add a note, uh, don't mean to interrupt you, Don. I don't know if you had more to say, but... Uh, I, you know, I've just thought that the relationship that we have with the church and with God sometimes is like a marriage, and the scriptures compare it to a marriage. And I hear people sometimes who've gone through a difficult divorce or something who'll say, you know, I never loved him, or I never loved her, or we were never happy. And I think that's when you need to go back to a journal if you kept one, mm-hmm. and realize that there were times when you were. Uh, sometimes we forget that, and when the doubts come in and overwhelm the positive things and the things that you know, they can they can loom larger than they really are. Yeah. Uh, and so it's it's important, I think, keeping a journal, going back and revisiting the things that you know, or the things that you felt good about. And uh, I like William James Counsel, the great philosopher psychologist from the turn of the last century, who said, you know, if the evidence is about fifty fifty, he said, it's rational to go either way. Now I think on some issues the evidence is better than fifty fifty. On others it may be about that. But he said that you can, it's rational to go either way. But then his, his advice was, if you're going to make a mistake, he said, err on the sunny side of doubt. Hmm. You know, if, if all things are about equal, one way may be much happier than the other way. Yeah. And, uh, and I've found in a lot of cases, people who, people who leave the church will, will write to me and boast about how happy they are. But I see that in many cases, I know their lives are falling apart. Like you just yeah. don't remember. You used to be a happy, sunny person. Now you're miserable. Right. Uh, right. I've seen a lot of people who talk about how much happier they are now when they left the church, and yet when I'm listening to them rant so angrily that <laughs> they they don't sound they don't sound it. My personal experience, I definitely was not happier. I was I was less happy. Um, but um, I I would add. Uh, also to that, um, just to to pay attention to the questions that you're asking, because like in my experience where 
I was guiding my research in part by this question about Joseph Smith, what was in it for him, you know, assuming he was an opportunist. And that focused me only on things that could be interpreted as selfish and therefore blinded me to anything else in the man's life. Well, of course, if you just look at anything that can be interpreted selfishly about anyone, then they're going to appear opportunistic. But if you look at a whole person, if you expand the questions that you ask that guide your attention somewhere, then they will lead you to better places. Ken, welcome aboard. Good afternoon, Mills. Uh, Glad to be chatting with you. Interesting conversation. Reminds me of a lot of talks we had when I was getting my Ph.D. And the point I wanted to make was that historicity is irrelevant. The truth is not whether or not there was an Alma. The truth is those powerful messages he gave to his sons and their advice. Mm. And the most beautiful pacifist story I've ever read is about the anti-Nephi-Lehites and how they won the battle and came away from the battle with more men than when they went in. Those truths so overshadow whether or not it's historical they make the historicity irrelevant, and I want to go to something else real fast if I could. I, uh, I did a thing on YouTube. Go to YouTube, look up my daughter, Valerie Vivar, V-I-V-A-R, and then my name, Ken Larson, or And Should We Die. I told about my grandmother's grandmother, who was in the Martin Handcart Company. For two or three minutes, I talk about their history, and then I play Come, Come, You Saints on the harmonica, and uh, several people have told me it made them cry. 24th of July, this is something you might want to go look at. I appreciate that. Thank you very Thank much. You. You're welcome. Uh, m- may I respond to that just a little bit? Uh, yeah, and then we'll have Carl on. Go ahead. Okay. Um, you know, I think that historicity is dwarfed by the message, of course. I mean, there's... there's uh, you know, there are lots of books that are historical, but they don't they don't move you. They don't have any power for your salvation or changing your life. I mean, uh, a phone book from 1950 <laughs> Los Angeles is historical, but it's of no significance. Um, yeah, but it seems to me that historicity is not irrelevant. I mean, w- one thing that's really important about the Book of Mormon is its witness as a second testament of Christ. Um, and it really makes a difference as to whether uh, whether or not Christ really appeared in the New World after his resurrection, or whether that was just some fiction dreamed up by Joseph Smith. Uh, in the first case, it counts as extra evidence for the resurrection of Christ and for his deity, his status as atoning son of God. In the second case, it just means that Joseph Smith really believed in it or really felt positively about Jesus or something, and that might be historically interesting, but it's not nearly as significant. So, But I would agree that it's possible for people to argue so much about the historical authenticity of the Book of Mormon, archaeology, and so on, that they lose sight of what the book is really about. And it's not just about Nephite monetary systems or, or something, or about the location of the Jaredite city of Lib or something like right. that. It's it's about things much more important than that. But the historicity serves as an, as an underpinning to that. You know, to me, if the resurrection of Christ really occurred, going to the New Testament, that makes a huge difference. Uh, if it's just a symbol of the triumph of light over dark, good over evil or something, well, that's nice and that's kind of moving. But it makes a difference to me to believe that Christ actually rose literally from the dead. Carl, your turn. Yeah, I've got a, got some uh, comments, questions for the archaeologist. Uh, 
Now, I was reading about uh, the various types of uh, plant foods that the uh, the Indians domesticated, uh, which include uh, corn and chili peppers, squash, pinto beans, tomatoes, potatoes, avocados, peanuts, chocolate, uh, and about 27 others. Uh, yeah, it's funny that the uh, the Book of Mormon doesn't mention any of those, uh, but the Book of Mormon does mention that uh, the, the Lehi uh, Nephi brought these uh, seeds from uh, from Israel and planted them in the New World. Uh, that would include wheat and barley and rye. How come uh, you know uh, none of, none of the uh, those crops uh, mentioned in the Book of Mormon have been found in the Americas? And, of course, uh, all the foods that the Indians domesticated are not found in the Book of Mormon. So you'd be really hard-pressed, I think, to uh, put together a, a Nephite dietary list from the Book of Mormon. There's not that much mentioned there. Well, that, but does some that they is brought the grains. It does mention that they brought the grains and planted them, but grains often die out. We know the Vikings planted things in the New World, too, but you can't find them. And... Um, they might eventually have gone to a different kind of, uh, of diet that was more in keeping with the local culture. Uh, one of the things that's mentioned, though, interestingly enough, is barley, and we have found barley Where? in the New World, so Where? we know that that exists. Where? A, lot of, a lot of people thought it was found in Arizona, oddly enough, near Phoenix. Yeah, I've been there. The I, freeway there. Yeah, you know what barley is? And I know what, what that barley bar- is. That barley in, in Arizona was not the same species of barley found in the uh, in the old world. Barley is nothing more than a wild grass. Well, it was recognizably barley. The Book of Mormon says barley, and that seems okay, to so, me to handle uh, that one. But the other grain that's mentioned that I find interesting is shalom, which turns out to be, oddly enough, it's mentioned in Mosiah chapter 7, a shalom actually is the name of, a, of an ancient Mesopotamian grain. And I find it really interesting that that grain name shows up in the Book of Mormon. I mean, I suppose it's possibly just chance, but it's a kind of an odd word. And, yeah, uh, isn't it mentioned and it, in the it Bible? It's actually an authentic Babylonian grain. Yeah, isn't the name uh, uh, in the Bible? Shalem? No, yes. not that I know of. Yeah, it's in the Bible. No, I've got a not. Bible it's dictionary. A grain name? I think no. you're mistaken, Carl. Oh, no, no, the name is in the Bible. And that's where Joseph Smith got it's it. Not. How do you know he got it from that? Come on, is it a grain name in the Bible? Because he knew the Bible back and forth. No, he didn't actually. His mother said he seldom read the Bible. But yeah, was, is it a lying. grain name? She's lying. Is it a? She's lying. Yeah, he he could uh, he could uh, cite Isaiah without <laughs> looking at the Bible. You know. To, to uh, the, uh, well, you're, you're making a lot of assumptions there, and it, it seems to be one thing you do reminds me of a, of a comment that Richard Bushman made once. He said, you know, the anti-Mormon view of Joseph Smith requires people to reject just about all of the primary documents from earliest stages of Mormon history, and that's what you're doing. Mm-hmm. You brush uh, Lucy Mack Smith's account off, you claim their lies, and you, uh, you, you invent this story of him finding it in the Bible, you invent this remarkable mastery of the Old Testament, and you're kind of, you know, picking and choosing your sources to go along with what you want. Anything that doesn't fit your image, you reject, just brush aside, and then you reinterpret things to make them fit your sources. I mean, that is not serious methodology. Unfortunately, we're at the top of the hour, Carl. Thank you. I appreciate your call. uh, Professor, can you stay over for a while? Yeah, I think I can. Good. All, All right. Because we do definitely want to plug the uh, uh, the upcoming uh, conference, 
And uh, Dan, uh, Don, thank you very much for being here. I know you have to leave, but yeah, we... Thank you for having me. It's, it's been a lot of fun. This is my first time on the radio, and I've loved it. You've done a great job. We'll be Thanks, back Ron. with uh, Professor Peterson Talk to you later, Dan. right after Top of the Hour News. You're listening to Drive Time Live, the Mills Crenshaw Show on KTalk. We are privileged to have uh, Professor Dan Peterson uh, staying over. Let me give your uh, website again, uh, Professor. It is Daniel underscore Peterson, O-N, at byu.edu. Yeah, that's my email address. Yeah. And we uh, really appreciate your staying over. Uh, and there are a number of things I want to talk with you about, but Ivan from Orem, welcome. Thank you, Mills. Uh, great show for you and your guests. Uh, I just wanted to mention something. I get a lot of con- uh, entertainment out of Carl's remarks, and I'm sure uh, a lot of other people do. Uh, I wanted to mention to you Zub's Law. You might not be familiar with it, but it seems especially pertinent at this point. It says the not informed can be expected to oppose whatever he does not understand. Hiding his own ignorance by a degree of aggressive dissent roughly equal to his ignorance. The greater the ignorance, the greater the opposition. <laughs> <laughs> and that spell zoobs. Z O O B apostrophe S. Oh, interesting. I'll have to look that up. That's fascinating. <laughs> It is fascinating. I've, I've witnessed this in a number of different times and a number of places. It's kind of fun. Thank so. you for that addition. We appreciate it. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Professor, uh, I have always been fascinated by the Book of Abraham, and I have been astounded by the lengths to which the critics will go in trying to deliberately distort the evidence at hand uh, that Joseph Smith Papyra, for example, it, it was never claimed to be the document from which it was translated, and yet almost all the critics want to force those breathing texts, but they studiously ignore what those papyri actually do contain uh, and I think Dr. Nibley did a, a masterful job of bringing some rather breathtaking things out. Yeah, he, he actually observed that people are almost hysterically eager to avoid the, the actual content of the book. They want to talk about how we got it, but they don't want to look at what it actually says. And what it has to say is really profound. It's a remarkable book. I mean, it's a short little thing, but, but a lot crammed into it, and a lot that has clear ties to the ancient world in, in ways that I just don't believe Joseph Smith could have come up with. At least, it doesn't seem likely to me. Well, the very fact that this um, unlearned farm boy came up with um, the relative nature of time well before Einstein was even born uh, always fascinated me. Yeah. And, yeah. and there are several other things, too, um, but something occurred just last week that, to me, was astounding. Now, you may be very familiar with this. I was at uh, Cedar Fort Publisher buying back the rights to my own book. Uh-huh. And I stumbled across an author who was there picking up copies of his book, and I overheard him discussing 
the fact that there are Lamanite tribes who are identifying themselves as such, uh, a, a factor that I had never supposed, and yeah. that they were very tall, and that their traditions go back uh, a, a great distance, and that they talk about things that are contained in the Book of Mormon in their own traditions. Not, I was not familiar with this at all, and I'm going to try and get him as a guest. I would be fascinated by that. I've heard little bits about a, a tribe that was found, that I can't remember their name, but they were on some islands in the San Blas Islands, like near Panama, where uh, a professor who used to teach here at BYU and then left and his teachings back east said that he had stumbled upon them, and he said it would blow Mormons away if they could see the rituals they perform and so on and so forth. Uh, and they're just a tiny little group isolated on an island there and very secretive. Um, but there are little pockets of things that survive to this day, I think, that are fascinating. And one thing I'm looking forward to, a friend of mine is uh, is finally getting some people he knows in New Zealand to put together a bunch of, of lore from the Maori in New Zealand. And there again, there are things in their secret lore and, and that is passed down from generation to generation, not published. It is just remarkable about the war in heaven, and a father with two sons, one is good, one rebels, in the pre-mortal councils. And, you know, this is just fascinating stuff. It needs to be written up and made public. The Maori are very fascinating people. They are, yeah. I'm, I'm really looking forward to this. I don't know how long it'll be before it's put together and published, but I'm really pushing them. One thing I'm good at is being a pest to... Uh, <laughs> pester people I know who have interesting things to say. I will ride them and ride them. I love the parable of the unjust judge in the New Testament, you know, that he may not want to do justice, but if you harass him enough, he'll finally do it. I'm willing to harass until people produce. They'll find their lives are easier if they just go ahead and do it to get me off their back. Do you find that most of the critics of the church are intellectually dishonest? I find a lot are. You know, that, that was especially true of the, um, you know, the old days of Ed Decker and the Godmakers. I mean, that, I don't think the man has a shred of integrity. Um, and he was willing to say and do just about anything uh, to make a point, and it was flat-out dishonest in many cases, demonstrably untrue. Uh, you could catch him in flat-out lies all the time. And there have been more than a few of those. Uh, you know, Gerald and Sandra Tanner, I used to have... They were the famous professional anti-Mormons in Salt Lake. Uh, I used to think that they were pretty honest, and you know maybe they still are in a way, or that he's passed away. But but I remember when I finally got around to checking some of their sources and thinking, my word, they don't actually say what what the Tanners claimed they did. You know, I I was just astonished at that. I assumed that they weren't misrepresenting, but sometimes they would quote something, and and right next to it would be something that would undercut their point. But they would leave it out. And I think, now, you cannot miss that, um, except deliberately. You can't just overlook it. It's right there. So I've been um, I've been shocked to find how much uh, dishonesty there is. I mean, I think the, the, the classic case was the old uh, evangelical anti-Mormon, Walter Martin, who even claimed to have a doctorate. Um, there's nothing wrong with not having one, but there is something wrong with not having one and claiming you do, and he did. He claimed to be a descendant of Brigham Young, which he wasn't. He claimed to have a doctorate, which which he, if he did, it was from a little diploma mill with 
four people on the staff, all of whom were called Dean. And you, you know, you pay uh, five hundred bucks and you get your doctorate. I mean, that sort of stuff doesn't sit well with me. Or, or another one who claimed to be a descendant of Oliver Cowdery. His name was Cowdery too, spelled a little differently. Trouble is, Oliver Cowdery only had one child, a daughter, and she died, died childless. Uh, really a pretty hard to be a Cowdery. descendant. Yeah, it's, it's a true miracle if he is. <laughs> I have had a caller uh, text me off the air asking if you were thinking of the Kuna Indians. Yes, I believe so. Interesting. 254-5855. J.R. from Sandy, welcome. Oh, thank you. I have a question about... I got. I was laying on the carpet and my voice changes. Um, manna, the food that the Israelites were eating for a long time. And right. I also want to ask you about a substitute for barley. You, you were talking about someone said that was in the Bible and you said it was not. Uh, but it isn't barley. It's something in... Would you mention that name again? Yeah, it was Sheum. It's spelled S-H-E-U-M. S-H-E-U-M. And if, it's a, if it occurs in the Bible, I don't recall it, uh, as, a, as a name for a grain. Mm-hmm. Uh, now, there may be a personal name. Heavens, there are thousands of personal names. Uh, but this isn't a personal name. It's listed in the group of grains in Mosiah 7. And it also shows up. I could... I were here, or if I were there in the studio, or you know, on TV, I could, I could write out the the uh, not the hieroglyph, but the cuneiform sign for Shem, and it's an authentic ancient Near Eastern grain name, and it shows up in the Book of Mormon, which I, I find really interesting. Um, the uh, manna, what what was it? That's the interesting thing about that is that's what manna means. It means basically, what is it? What's oh. this? <laughs> <laughs> that's kind of a funny word. I had um, heard on another program, a nighttime program, uh, early morning, that you can make carbohydrates out of oil, at least a little microbe can, and I'm wondering if that was what they were eating, oil. You know, it, it may be. People have speculated about what it was. It was obviously something the uh, the Israelites didn't recognize. And some people say, oh, it came from a certain plant. Well, I can't imagine any plant that produces every morning regularly and then doesn't produce on the Sabbath, but produces double the amount on the day before the Sabbath. Yeah, that's, that's pretty not, strange. Yeah, that that's is. not natural. <laughs> that's all I had with those two questions, and thank you for answering them. Thank you, Mill. Thank you for the call. 254-5855. Mike from West Jordan, welcome. Yeah, I came across an interesting website, um, about Book of Mormon Geography, and... Uh, it talked about, uh, I thought it was a very objective point of view um, about locations and possible locations. And, uh, you know, he talked about the importance of the narrow neck of the land and distances that the Book of Mormon talked about, how long it took to get from, say, the East Sea to the West Sea. Anyways, it's uh, called MormonGeography.com, and it places it down in Costa Rica. I'm wondering if you guys have. I read on that. Um, I think his name was War. War was the the author of that, and, and if you had an opinion about that, I have seen the site. I haven't gone through it very carefully, um, but I, yeah, I think this is this kind of thing is really interesting. I think the one thing that most theorists agree on is that the distances are small. Uh, yeah. If you if you take all the distances in the Book of Mormon, you know, so and so many days journey this way, and so many days journey that way. The, the Nephite lands are very, very small. Uh, 
When I was growing up, we just naturally assumed the land northward is North America, the land southward is South America, narrow neck of land is the Isthmus of Panama. But when you actually read the Book of Mormon, it's clear that's not possible. It's, um, it's, it's a much smaller area than that. Um, and uh, I think that's a crucial discovery that people have made in you know the past few decades. The Book of Mormon lands are very, very small by our standards, just as Israel is. I mean, the big story doesn't have to take place in a big location. It can be very small. And, um, you know, the Book of Mormon is probably no more than, oh, you know, a couple of hundred miles in any direction. Uh, that's the basic within which it takes place. And uh, I've been down to Costa Rica. I know there's some excellent sites down there. Um, the Sorensen model puts it in Guatemala and in um, southern Mexico. But, you know, I'm thinking that's the general area. That's where I lean. Well, Martin Tanner, a good friend of mine, uh, uh, once showed me uh, a satellite uh, picture of an area that he had identified that fit all of the criteria, including an, an area that has a lot of snakes. And um, I... I must profess ignorance. I couldn't find it again if my life depended on it. But it uh, apparently there are some pretty good candidates. Yeah, I think there are, and they don't agree with the area around upstate New York. I mean, it's not Joseph Smith's area. You uh, one of the one of the clues that I see is you have the account of the killing of Amalekiah, where a Tancum sneaks into the camp and kills Amalekiah. And it goes out of its way to say that it was the, uh, the the next morning was the first day of the new year. And then it also says that everybody in the Lamanite camp was overcome by the heat and the labor and the fatigue of the day. Hmm. Well, that tells you <laughs> one of two things, and maybe two things. It is definitely not January 1st up around Rochester, New York. Well, the other thing about that is... Hold, hold that thought. We'll be right back. You're listening to Drive Time Live, the Mills Crenshaw Show on KTOC. And uh, we'll be back with uh, Professor Dan Peterson and our caller right after this. 523 in the Mount West. Welcome back. Telephone number 801-254-5855. Chris in Springville, welcome. Hi. So Carl is the reason that I'm a member of the LDS Church. I want you guys to know, I used to be an atheist, but then I tuned into K-Talk, and I, I, I couldn't believe that a man who spent so much time and effort going through intellectual gymnastics the way he does to try to just disprove something if there wasn't something to it. So thank you, Carl. <laughs> <laughs> I owe my testimony to him. <laughs> but, you know, I, I listen to you guys and the archaeological evidence, the only reason I'm a member is because it makes me happy. And if that's not a legitimate reason to do something, I don't know what is. I don't care if there were horses or not. Hey, maybe God just put that in to see if that would serve as a stumbling block for us. You know, maybe they weren't horses. Maybe the whole thing is made up. The only thing I know, guys, is when I read the Book of Mormon, I get a feeling that it's true it's a happy feeling, it's a comforting feeling, and it's a terrific guide to my life. And that's all I know. You know, you call it the Spirit, say I'm deceived, whatever. I love being deceived. Well, Chris, <laughs> I, I think those are great comments. The Lord has said in the Scriptures, prove me herewith. And I can't speak for anybody else, 
but I've put him to the proof. And I've discovered there's no way in the world you can get the Lord in your debt. You know, I don't see, and let me just add one more point. I'll let you go because I know you've got callers. I mean, I don't see people spending all their time and energy trying to prove that the Toothberry is false or that the Eastern Bunny is false. <laughs> I mean, why, why would somebody de- devote so much of their time and energy to disproving something that brings happiness into so many people's lives? I mean, look at the LDS communities. Everywhere I go, they're the, the most prosperous, they're the happiest, they're the most stable families. I mean, everything associated with the LDS community is positive. Why would they want to disrupt that? It's, there it's is really a reason. Way. There is a reason. It's called guilt. That's right. <laughs> well, you know, the evidence is pretty clear now. There, there, there are lots of studies, uh, all sorts of studies that show that religious people, faithful people uh, are healthier. Uh, they have happier families. You know, you'll find exceptions here and there, but by and large... Statistically, the evidence is overwhelming. They they uh, recover more quickly from surgeries. They have less depression. They have less drug addiction. I mean, it, it's just simply, obviously, the case, demonstrably the case, that religious yep. belief makes people happier, and and uh, Mormon religious belief tends to make people especially happy. The statistics, on the whole, are really, really positive. Um, and so, you know, that alone is an argument. I hear, like, I think we said the previous hour that uh, there are people out there who say, oh, I'm much happier uh, since I left the church. I suppose in some cases that's possible. I don't know. But in the cases I know, typically, um, they may be claiming they're happy, but they sure don't look it and they don't act it. Yeah. Well, they're making their lives much more complicated than it needs to be. Appreciate that, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, guys. John and Provo, welcome. Uh, yes, Dan. Um, what do you think about uh, Dr. Chessman's uh, archaeological studies in Central America and then also his conclusions? And I'll take uh, your answer off air. Thank you for the call. Well, he was, uh, Paul Chessman was one of the first people to, to pay real attention. Uh, well, maybe I shouldn't say one of the first, but he was an early one to, to pay attention to uh, Central America and so on, and to make it well known among the membership. I mean, his film Ancient America Speaks was a a kind of landmark. Um, some of what he did, what he did, has now been overtaken, uh, improved upon, and so on. But he was a real pathbreaker and um, uh, did a lot to publicize the notion of of ancient American ruins and their correlation with the Book of Mormon. So I really hail him as a pioneer, and he was in other ways too. He was one of the people who did early work on the uh, first vision of Joseph Smith when we were first looking at multiple accounts and so on, and there were controversies about it. He did invaluable work on that. Anything else, Chris? Oh, Chris is gone. Okay. 254-5855, and uh, we welcome your calls. Uh Professor, would you uh, give us a, a little more background on the conference that's coming up? Because I do want to plug it. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> this is the conference, the annual conference of the uh, of the Foundation for Apologetic Information and Research, as it's called, or FAIR, and it's going to be held on the first and second of August. And uh, one crucial thing that needs to be known is that. Uh, is that it's going to be held in a new location. It's been held for years in, in Sandy, so I'm afraid that people might go there out of habit. 
and uh, find it's not there. This year it's going to be in Provo at the uh, Utah Valley Convention Center. That's right downtown on 220 West Center Street in Provo. And um, we've got a great lineup of speakers. I mean, apart from me, I'm sort of I'm sort of the guy who, in my view, makes it. After people have had a wonderful conference, I always give the closing remarks, and they're so bad that it makes it less painful for people to see the conference come to an end. Um, but um, uh, we're going to have talks on uh, on on doubts and you know threats to faith, on Joseph Smith's visions, um, on Mormonism and politics, on uh, on why Mormonism matters. Robert Kirby of the Tribune is going to be giving a presentation on why it's important to laugh at ourselves, and I'm betting that'll be pretty funny. Um, we're going to have Don Bradley, who was on in the previous hour, talking about the first vision story. Um, and uh, Mark Wright, he mentioned talking about the Mesoamerican uh, theory and the North American theory of Book of Mormon geography. Um, we have a panel on the loss and rekindling of faith. I mean, it's just going to be a good thing. There's always a a big book display, um, and uh, a lot of good people to meet. It's a lot of fun to be there, and I really, really hope that people will come. It's a feast. It really is. Yeah, it is, and there's something for every taste, and you can wander in, wander out, uh, come one day, not come the next, whatever. It'll come both days, I hope. But, uh, you know, if you want to step out, there's always something to look at in the bookstore or people to talk with, and and it will be... um, I, I found these thoroughly enjoyable uh, every year. So, hoping people will come. That's uh, that's on on uh, the first and second of August in Provo at the Utah Utah Valley Convention Center. Outstanding. Thank you, Greg. Welcome. You're on K Talk. Yes. Uh, you know, I don't have a question directly on the Book of Mormon, but it's related to Mormonism. Uh, I've heard that. Uh, Past statistics show that the uh, the uh, area of Provo, Utah, has one of the highest sales of Prozac. Uh, have either of you heard anything about that at all? Uh, you know, I've heard claims like that. I don't know if they're true. Uh, I've seen the assertion. Um, I've uh, th- there's one thing that I wonder about with that. I mean, in, in other places, people self-medicate with booze or with hard drugs. It's possible that people here who self-medicate do it with something else. There is also, um, and I haven't looked into this at all, people claim there's a high rate of uh, prescription of uh, antidepressants in Utah generally. Again, I don't know if that's true. I haven't looked into it. It's something that needs to be examined. But it may simply be that um, something as simple as... um, as the University of Utah Medical School, where many of the local physicians were trained, uh, may may tend to prescribe uh, antidepressants more than certain other medical schools do. I read a book a number of years ago called How Doctors Think, and the fellow pointed out that he was a doctor himself at Harvard Medical School, that different hospitals and different medical schools have fashions or, or tendencies. So one... Uh, graduates of one medical school will do more of a certain kind of surgical procedure than others do because that's what their teachers taught them Uh, medicine isn't the same everywhere that might account for this if it's true but I don't even know if it's true Mills? Yes Greg Uh, do you have an opinion on that? Uh, I think it has more to do with schools than anything else this is a guess I don't really know this 
but the the apocryphal information that I have read indicates that uh, certain schools were given money for prescribing to kids, and if the kids are put on these uh, on these drugs early in their life, they tend to continue. Okay, thank you very much. John. Thank you. That that sounds to me like a very plausible explanation too. Uh, I just I look <clears> around and I just I can't believe because I've lived in a lot of different places. And I simply can't believe that depression is an enormous problem here and it isn't in other places, and that that's due to Mormonism. That just doesn't make any sense to it, me. No, it doesn't. Frank and Layton, welcome. Hey, thanks, you. Um, my question is always concerned uh, the. Uh, procreation rate of, of the uh, Book of Mormon. You take a small group that travel across the ocean, and, and by the end of the Book of Mormon, and I realize time happens, but when you read through all the books of Alma and how many wars and people dying continually throughout that book, and then at the end, Moroni is describing the destruction of these people, and there's, you know, a hundred or so captains with their ten thousands that died. I don't see any archaeological evidence, or I don't hear of a lot, that would indicate that you had those kinds of mass graves where they fought out on a battlefield, and there were so many they couldn't even bury their own dead. There were maybe not the flesh, but the bones would be there, the swords, the, the armor, the weaponry. We don't see a lot of that. And yet, how would you take 100,000 people, put them all in a small area to battle till death, and we don't see... <laughs> you would think there'd be a lot of stuff found around any of these kind of any of these archaeological sites would indicate that kind of war and violence took place. Yeah, um, you know, first of all, I'd say the population figures are probably a little bit inflated uh, in the Book of Mormon. They typically are in ancient texts. People would just say, "Well, you know, there were lots of people," and you know, so they'd say a hundred thousand. Uh, or you know, fifty thousand or ten thousand, they may or may not have been really that large. When you see the military units in the uh, in the last chapters of the Book of Mormon, so and so with his ten thousand, and so and so with his ten thousand, that may be an ideal number. Um, uh, for example, a Roman century was supposedly a hundred, and a centurion was a commander of a hundred, but a century could range anywhere from thirty to a hundred people. Um, and quite often they were much smaller than a hundred. A hundred was the ideal. Look at our first quorum of the seventy. It doesn't have seventy people in it yet. Um, or look at a U.S. Army division that could go anywhere from three or four thousand to fifteen thousand. Um, so the number may or may not have been ten thousand. I might give you a reference though that might help you with this. Years ago, uh, the what became known as the Farms Review in Volume Six, uh, Issue Number One published an article by James E. Smith. Um, it's online now. You can find it under the title of Nephi's Descendants? Question mark. Historical Demography in the Book of Mormon by James E. Smith on the Maxwell Institute website. And uh, Jim Smith was a real find for me. There had been an article published criticizing the Book of Mormon population figures as being much too high. And uh, I was looking for a person to respond to it. I didn't even know this guy existed, but Jim Smith, it turned out, was one of the world's leading authorities on ancient populations. He developed the uh, computer simulation model called CAMSIM that they use at the University of Cambridge in England to uh, to study ancient populations. And it turned out he's LDS. 
And uh, he wrote a response to this thing. This is the article, Nephi's Descendants, Historical Demography in the Book of Mormon, in which he argues that if you look at the statistics in the Book of Mormon, the Book of Mormon is, is within the range. It's at the high end, but it's within the range of historical population figures. You might want to have a look at that. It's, uh, it's longer than I can summarize, but, um, but he looked at all the data and uh, applied his expertise on ancient populations to the okay. Book of Mormon. I'll take says, a look at no, it. Just, it's fine. You know, with the death rates, as you read through that, that's all the people that seem to get killed, you take into account for the natural death rate that would occur in a population, it, their birth rate must have been astronomical to maintain those kind of numbers. Yeah, well, have a look at his article. I think you'll find it. it Remember, they didn't have planned that. parenthood at that time. <laughs> they didn't That's need true. it. You have developing countries that would be in the same situation um, in a society-wise, and their birth rates aren't that high. You don't well, have, have a, a look birth at his rate article. that is, you know, 80 90% successful. Take a look at his article, because he goes through all of that, and uh, with with considerable expertise on population statistics, and particularly ancient populations, and he says, right. no, it's uh, it's believable, it's plausible, this makes sense. Thank you very much. Hey, Fred, sure. thank you, appreciate that call. Susie, welcome. Hello. Um, yeah, I have a cute question, one about manna, I know what that is, it was angel food. <laughs> that's what it was. That's what that's what it was. And they actually said it to the forty forty years of the to the Israelites when they had to go with Moses into the end of the desert for forty years. Then they gave him quail because they kept complaining. Yeah, <laughs> that's a true fact. It's in the Bible. And also, Lucifer Satan entered Lucifer, and that meant because of pride. And he was an archangel. He was not uh, Jesus's brother. Uh. I read my testament. Well, there's there's no biblical term archangel, um, uh, but he is regarded as a as a spirit who fell. Um, and there were mm-hmm. ancient Christians who believed that he was in fact a, a brother of Jesus, uh, or a spirit brother of of Jesus. That's uh, it's uncommon, but it's it exists. Lactantius in particular. Because hmm. in Calvary Chapel, you know, they t- they say that the Book of Mormon is a false doctrine, and Joseph Smith was a quack. Yeah, well, they you know, you know, think well, Calvary Chapel. We, okay, well, we just need to talk. I mean, I was brought, brought up as a Catholic, you know, and there's some things I question about that. Because um, uh, I didn't really learn the Bible through the Catholic Church. They, they wanted you to read the Catechism, you know? And right. you're supposed to just go to the, to, the, to the Word, you know, the New and Old Testament. Some people don't believe in the Old Testament because they said when Jesus came, the Old Testament was thrown out. I don't believe that. I mean, there's a lot of beliefs out there. Yeah, there are lots of beliefs and opinions about uh, about doctrine and so on, and a thousand or more different uh, Christian religious groups, all with different clashing uh, mm-hmm. views on this and that issue, which is which is pretty much what Joseph Smith said he was coming to deal with. That he was called to uh, to restore the truth amidst all the uh, the conflicting opinions, but mm-hmm. there are still plenty of conflicting opinions. Yes, there are. I know. There, you just have to pray to the Holy Spirit and get guidance. Susie, yeah. I, before we uh, oh, yeah. run I'll off here, tomorrow. when yeah. will I see you? Tomorrow, tomorrow after I get off, I just I guess I'll drive all the way out there. Fair, that's fine, so long as I know. Okay, okay I'll be there I'm probably about five thirty. Sounds good. Okay. Thank you have much. A good night. Okay. Bye. We have a, a short break for commercial. We'll be right back. You're listening to Drive Time Live, the Mills Crenshaw Show on K Talk. 
It's 444. Correction, it's 544 in the Mountain West. Welcome to Drive Time Live, the Mills Crenshaw Show. Rod from Independence, Missouri. Thank you for calling. It's an honor to have you, sir. Well, thank you for having me. Go right ahead. You're on the air. Uh, yes, uh, I, I was just going to uh, ask uh, Dan. Um, I have not been privy to the entire uh, conversation that's been been going on, but I have had a number of people who have contacted me. I am actually out here uh, just pretty close to the Liberty Jail and uh, wanted to, to uh, mention something that... Uh, Dan had brought up apparently earlier about uh, Book of Mormon geography-related things, and has to do with the uh, Amalekia and the uh, the timing of the uh, the new year and the uh, the weather at that at that point in time. Go right ahead. Uh, okay. Well, basically, uh, I know that uh, um, Dan had an article that was in the Desert News. Um, that was called uh, "May Your New Year Begin Better Than Amalekias," which was a was a really uh, uh, innovative article. Um, but tries to uh, to say that the Book of Mormon geography could not have possibly been in North America because of temperatures in in Rochester, New York, in January. Right. Um, assuming that uh, Amalekias uh, the end at the end of the year was sometime in a similar calendaring system as we have today, but I know that Dan knows that that's not, you know, that the, uh, the Nephites were living the laws of Moses, and that would require living a, using a Jewish calendar. And, of course, we know that when Christ was crucified, um, that it was just, just following the Passover, which is sometime typically in April. And then the other thing is, is that the Hartman model geography doesn't propose the the primary lens of the Book of Mormon being in Rochester, New York, which Dan asserts that, but rather in closer to St. Louis. And the temperatures in St. Louis in April are certainly conducive for coming to battle in a loin cloth. Uh, average temperatures being between 70 and 75, and high temperatures, uh, record temperatures being, you know, 97, 98 degrees. That's definitely loin cloth weather in the heartland of North America. Yeah, that's why is, I said that, uh, what, what is, that what is the, the uh, Amalekai story yeah, tells you. Does still feel that's the case, or, or what? Yeah. Is the Amalekai story tells you one of two things, I said. It tells you either that the calendar is not the same as ours, or that the place is different, or potentially both. But it tells you, this. the, the main argument that I see coming from that is, this is not Joseph Smith simply, you know, making up a story and placing it in his own environment up around right. upstate New York uh, in the calendar he's familiar with. It's a throwaway detail. It's a tiny little reference that he may not have even noticed. But it's significant once you notice it because it tells you it's not Joseph Smith's environment and Joseph Smith's calendar. Um, it's, it's different on one or both of those counts. Uh, I don't use it to distinguish between... Um, when I talk about Rochester, New York, I'm not talking about the Heartland model of geography. I'm talking about right. those who try to put the Book of Mormon up around Joseph Smith's uh, place in New York. These are usually critics who don't believe in the Book of Mormon at all. And they say yeah. he just, you know, just took his uh, environment and made up a story and put it in the surroundings that he knew. Well, he didn't know a warm New Year's Day in Palmyra, believe me. Mm-hmm. So... Um, yeah, you know, I don't I, think I just you can... to, to, to verify, because unfortunately I didn't get to hear that 
segment of the show. Um, yeah. And uh, that, I, that I appreciate all your efforts in uh, in defending the church and, and uh, continue on. Rod, well, we appreciate the fact you're listening. Thank you. You bet. Thank Bye-bye. You. 254-5855. Kay, welcome. You're on K-Talk. Hi, Mills. Hi, Dan. Hi. I'm enjoying the program. Hey, the previous caller was right. The Hebrew New Year, they have actually two New Year's. One's in the spring. The other one's in the fall. It's the Romans that started the New Year tradition in January. Right. Okay, so, um, but the, the thing that I really called to say is... Um, the um, Nephites used to, after battles, would throw all the bodies into the river, and they had some kind of big river that they were by where they would float out to sea or something like that. They also yeah. piled them up in mounds and threw dirt over them, and there's a lot of mounds in the United States. And some that they have dug into, they have found Christian-like artifacts, only they're Indian Christian artifacts, and they've found all kinds of things that point to the fact that there is a people here that nobody knows anything about. But, you know, a lot of Americans are not interested in the ancient history of this country. After all, we took the white people... We took this land away from the native people who lived here, and we broke every contract with them. We we violated every treaty with them, and then we stole their land from them. And so who wants to tell the real truth about their ancient history? Not most of the people who are here. They want to conceal it and hide it. Well, we certainly haven't shown much interest in it. I mean, we'll travel overseas to see the ancient civilizations of the Greeks and the Romans and the Egyptians and so on. But, you know, right in our own backyard, you have the Hopis who are really interesting and really old. And outside of St. Louis, you have the big Cahokia Indian Mound, which is enormous. Um, oh, yeah. And, and, and people drive by and don't even go in and have a look. It's it's yeah. really remarkable stuff. And there there's so much stuff that they've, that they've dug up, and they haven't even dug into all of them. And I wouldn't be surprised if people would just, you know, plow them over to hide the evidence and stuff. But in, even um, also in ancient New York... They used to find ancient metal battle axes under the ground and stuff. And the farmers, that, there were no museums in early America. These farmers would take these battle axes and the different things and the arrowheads and everything that they would find, showing that there had been some great battle there at one time. And they would just turn them into, melt them down and turn them into tools that they could use on their farm. And, you know, they'd maybe remark to a neighbor or something. And some of them has, um, have, some of those stories have ended up in um, some of the early archaeological accounts in um, New York. So, but um, well, that um, unfortunately is the story of archaeology just about everywhere. Yeah. It makes you cry when you read oh, some yeah. of the accounts of you know the, uh, modern Egyptians burning mummies in order to heat tea, or or they did the same thing with New Testament manuscripts at St. Catherine's Monastery in the Sinai, you know, ripping pages out of the oldest the oldest complete manuscript of the New Testament that we know of, uh-huh. ripping pages out of it. To, to heat tea for a farewell party. I mean, it, uh-huh. all around the world, it's a miracle that anything survives from the ancient world. And no, most it really things is. Don't. It really is. And there's so many things buried that they just aren't aware of here. Um, here's another thing. Um, after the Book of Mormon people ended up um, in civil wars, I mean, they literally, the Jaredites, which were the first people, had a burn policy where they just burned down all the cities on their way where when they were destroying everything and killing everything and the same thing happened in the war between the Lamanites and um, Nephites which ended by 400 AD but by 800 AD we had an invasion of Asians into the western side of um, North America 
And also, anciently, there have been Phoenicians in North America. So there have been a lot of other non-Book of Mormon, you know, non-Israelite people here, and probably more of them survived than of the Israelites, because most of the Israelites killed themselves off in a big civil war. You know, there was resistance even, uh, nobody remembers it today, but when people first uh, mentioned the Vikings coming to Newfoundland and places like that, uh, there were skeptics who said, no, it's impossible, nobody ever came from the old world to the new world. Uh, we now know that they did come, and uh, but there was a resistance for a long time mm-hmm. to to accept the idea that anybody came from anywhere. There are right. even accounts of Chinese um, Chinese naval fleets being off the coast of the Americas. Right. Um, I think They've there was much the more di- travel. The Japanese were in South America too. Yeah, yeah, much so, more yeah, travel between like the continents than we thought. People want to hang on to their false traditions, and they do it because they make money or they're being paid by some institution to you have that and it doesn't go along with what they want to think and what they want to believe and what they want to teach so good yeah. information Kay. thank okay. you okay bye appreciate the call stacy welcome thanks um quick correction there the term archangel actually is biblical i'm trying to remember a passage i was just saying that off the top of my head is there one uh first it Thessalonians. Means it's a ruling messenger sorry go ahead uh, 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and Jude 1.9. Um, I know, that it's hard to remember stuff like that, but I, I heard that and I thought, I knew I had seen it before, so I did a quick search. That's how I know. Yeah, I didn't remember it because in, in most of the accounts uh, that you have, they're just references to angels, to angeloi. And, uh, but, yeah, you may be right. I mean, I didn't have my concordance here with me when I made that statement. But it's not a common term, and you don't get... Um, in the in the early Christian literature, you don't get references to archangels until quite a bit later. You get start getting them when uh, when you have big hierarchies of angels laid out by people like Pseudo Dionysus in the fourth uh, and fifth century. Uh, then they start developing huge angelic hierarchies. But but there's really nothing like that uh, earlier. You might get a reference. Obviously, you do. You found them, but uh, but it's not a big deal. Later on in the Middle Ages, you have hierarchies of angels and archangels and uh, different kinds of angels, angels wearing different colors of robes, and so on and so forth, but the word angel just means messenger, um, and sometimes it's not even clear when it's used, whether it's referring to a human or a, or a non-human messenger. It One of the other both. interesting things about that, uh, Professor, as I recall, it was common for these messengers to to identify themselves and then begin speaking in first person as though they were God because they were speaking for him. Is That's that right. accurate? Yeah, you have a case of that in, in uh, the Revelation of John where where the angel comes and begins saying, you know, I am he who liveth and was slain and so on, and John falls to his knees and the angel says, get up, get up, I'm just one of your fellow servants the prophets and and then he goes on talking in that vein and John falls on his knees a second time because he's thinking you know you're talking as if you're Christ you've got to be the lord and uh, the angel says get up so it's um it's what uh, James Talmage called divine investiture you know where the where the angel speaks with the voice of god but is not god it's it's a separate messenger excellent thank you Appreciate that contribution. Uh, let's go quickly to Kevin. Kevin, you're on. Hello, Dr. Peterson. Hi. Hey, I uh, don't have a uh, big question per se, but I just wanted to call and let you know how much I admire your work. Oh, thank uh, you. I, uh, 
remember a few months back when you went through the uh, kind of the fiasco with uh, the Maxwell Institute, uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, John D- the John Dealen stuff, and I just wanted to let you know I'm just really happy to to know that you're still out there doing the fight because I think what uh, Brother Dealen's doing is not helping at all. No, know. it's not. And uh, yeah, it was an interesting experience to finally meet the buzzsaw of academic politics. Um, but yeah, I want to say um, uh, the Maxwell Institute has chosen to go a different direction, and the old style of Mormon apologetics that, that it was founded to do has now been abandoned. It's not going to be done anymore. But um, a group of us, uh, I call it Farms in Exile, or refugees from the old organization found that a new foundation called the Interpreter Foundation, I want to recommend it to people. If I can do a commercial, it, it's free, so I don't get anything for it. But we started a foundation called the Interpreter Foundation. We publish a, a journal called Interpreter, a German Journal of Mormon Scripture. You can find it online. You can get it. Go and look at it for free. We don't charge a thing. And it's right, at morminterpreter.com. Morminterpreter.com. Yeah, and right. we've published... We founded it on August 3rd, and we've published an article every week, every Friday, uh, since August 3rd of last year. It'll be our, our birthday on August 3rd this year, first anniversary. And we've also put up almost 40 scripture roundtables where people discuss um, uh, gospel doctrine lessons a few weeks in advance as maybe a help to people that are studying and teaching, and a lot of other good stuff on the website. We're totally out of time, Doctor. Fantastic. Thank you for being with us. We would like to invite you back again. I'd love it. Thanks. Thank you so much. And to those of you who are calling in and those who are waiting on the line, our apologies, but the time's been well spent. Stay tuned, Kyle 2K, next.